it's Christmas on the podcast, and our hearts are all aglow, as we welcome you to the podcast, and to Pee-wee's Christmas special. Oh, the holidays are here again, peace on earth, goodwill and cheer, as we wish you season's greetings at this bed. Show time of year. There we go. Mellifluous. Perfect. No need for a second take. It's Christmas! Welcome to The Goods, a film podcast, everybody. This is Brian here, along with Dan. Hey, Brian. Hey, Dan. How's it going? It's going really well, starting to get in the holiday spirit. We put up our Christmas tree, but our lights didn't work, so right now we have a naked Christmas tree. That's that's all right. I haven't even got my Christmas tree up yet. We've done some outside stuff. Uh, you know, the, the things that people can see, got to get that stuff out first, and then you can take care of the inside. But uh, nativity scene is up. You know, it's coming together, bit by bit. The Gauntlet Christmas show is done, and the season is upon us. Still early. I'm sure we'll have at least one more Christmas pick ahead. But... In the spirit of that season, the film I've selected, I guess it's gracious to call it, call it a film, but the piece of media I have selected for us to consider in this installment of The Goods is Pee-wee's Playhouse, The Christmas Special, from 1988. I trust that you've uh, gotten a chance to watch this. I did, yes. So I hadn't seen any Pee-wee's Playhouse or really anything Pee-wee related prior to this week or if i had it was a deep distant childhood and i don't really remember it so i caught it i watched two of the episodes and then i watched the special and i feel like i got a pretty good grasp of the overall peewee flavor it's a distinct one for sure uh but yeah i did i did manage to watch this this christmas special Great. I'm glad that you checked it out. I think this is going to be an interesting one. It'll give a window into some of my background, and it will give me some insight on what goes on in the mind of an outsider (laughs) once first exposed to Pee-wee. So I wanted to give a little bit of background about what this whole Pee-wee enterprise is about as best I can. Uh, So Pee-wee Herman was a character created by Paul Rubens, an actor who was a member of the Groundlings improv troupe in L.A. And the angle that he came at the character from is that he's kind of a intended as a 50s TV show host, kind of like somebody who would have showed up on the Howdy Doody show or something. He lives in a world full of puppets and he has a genie servant who grants him a wish every episode. And his human friends occasionally stop by. There's this recurring cast of characters who will pop in and out. Uh, one of the first was Phil Hartman, he of Simpsons fame, among other things, uh, who played Captain Carl, who was a seafaring character, as a sea captain. And together they created this show called the Pee Wee Herman Show. The Pee Wee Herman Show was a stage production, and it had sort of adult humor. And they put it on, and it was broadcast on HBO. 
and that kind of put this character on the map. And he made some appearances on David Letterman that helped him reach a larger audience. And by the middle of the 80s, they were in talks to make Pee-wee a movie, give him a starring vehicle. And this was Tim Burton's directorial debut, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, in 1985. But the next year, in 1986, Rubens brought back the Pee-wee Herman show concept and re-envisioned it to be an actual children's show, although I guess that's debatable if that was really the target audience. And he created Pee-wee's Playhouse, which debuted in 1986 and is kind of his best-known pop culture legacy. I think that's what really reached the most people and remains the most known. Although I, I think it retains a little bit of the adult humor, like I said, there's definitely some uh, edgy jokes. I agree. Some a, a handful of innuendos, and, and we'll get to it, but some of the appearances, the guest appearances, they were showing a little bit of skin. There was, there was some suggestiveness to it that I don't think would fly on, say, Blue's Clues or something like that. So... <laughs> Very astute. So I wanted to also share a little bit of my background with Pee-wee. So Christmas 1996, I got a VHS box set. It was eight cassette tapes. Each had two episodes on them. So 16 episodes total, and it was just random order. Like all throughout the series run, all kind of mixed together. Not, e not even in order on the tapes. So I, I guess this was like a best of... Just a grab bag of 16 episodes. I think they used to do that before DVDs. That was like the way that you could get TV shows in your house is they would be these VHS box sets. And I guess eight is kind of big, but I've heard of, you know, two or four. And then they they put in episodes that are totally unrelated to each other to kind of be like a sampler platter of that show. Actually, now that you mention that, I have come across that a couple of times. I've seen Star Trek boxed that way and Twilight Zone, that it's these grab bag VHSs. But at the Terrell household, we watched these a lot. I, I would just pop them in, watch them over and over, and I think it had an effect on me. <laughs> but we also early on got a VHS, separate VHS tape of the Christmas special. And I distinctly remember showing people the Pee-wee's Playhouse Christmas special at my daycare center in first grade. Like, oh, what can we watch? Oh, we'll put this on. <laughs> so this is, you know, t 20, 25 years later, doing the same thing. I'm sure the, the people in charge of the daycare were like, am I tripping balls right now? Like, what are we actually watching here? I imagine that's probably what was happening. I didn't finally see... The movie that started it off, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, until years later, I, I caught it on TV when I was like 13, and it just kind of blew my mind that that actually came before the show. So if you haven't seen that one, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I encourage you to look it up. It's one of my favorite movies. I did a lengthy blog post on it over on our entertainment media blog, earnthis.net. After seeing just a couple episodes in the Christmas special, I'm very intrigued on how that could translate to a feature length episode and then or a feature length movie. And then I saw that he did like a revival just a few years ago, another feature length movie that's on Netflix. 
yeah, he kind of struck up a partnership with Netflix, and so they've got all of Pee-wee's Playhouse now, and they've got the Christmas special. They had Big Adventure for a while. I don't know if they do right now. But then he produced a Netflix original movie with them called Pee-wee's Big Holiday that's sort of a sequel to Big Adventure. It's got that same road movie spirit. Pee-wee's Playhouse is also notable for having a huge influence on my own public access TV production, Count Gauntley's Horrors from the Public Domain. I imagine you would see more of that influence if I had a whole devoted team of artists contributing to my program. Uh, it's a little more bare bones than Pee-wee. Well, but... you know, you gotta, you gotta do what you can do. And I gotta say, over the years, you know, it may not be in every single episode, but over the years, you've done a handful of uh, ambitious, creative, fun-spirited things like you, you have here in, in the Peewee. So spread out over, over the years, I feel like you've, you, you've mashed it just at a slower pace. Maybe not with well, quite the same production values, but, but uh, certainly in spirit. Well, thank you very much. I've definitely tried to lift directly several bits and pieces directly from this Christmas special that we're going to be talking about here tonight. Before we dive into our recap, did you want to share any words of welcome, Dan? Uh, we talked a little bit about our Christmas prep, but anything else that you wanted to say before before this stage? No, not not before we jump into the film. We can we can dive right in. Okay, great. Now this is the point where we usually do a recap of our featured film, and I suppose today is no different, although I think it has to be mentioned that a recap seems a little futile here, because the spirit of the program is all about interrupting all the time with moments of kitschy art and animation of different kinds. It's like there's just always some some new kind of puppetry or animation popping in. Nothing really gets focused on in Pee-wee's Playhouse for very long. Right, it's almost like trying to do a recap of like an episode of SNL or something like that. It's like almost many tiny sketches, although there are a few threads that tie at least throughout several scenes. Yes, definitely on this one for sure. So when it starts out, we get a Christmas version of the stop-motion intro that leads into a typical episode. Uh, in a normal Pee-wee's Playhouse, you get the camera flying in through the woods outside the playhouse, and there's like monkeys climbing the trees and giraffes, and there's this tiki music that plays as the camera gets closer and closer in on the playhouse. But here everything is winterized. There's snow and there's foxes running through the snow, and gradually we pass by some elves and things over the snowy hills until we see the playhouse, which you kind of have to see what it looks like, but it's like every stylistic cultural influence from the 1950s just like blasted with super-saturated color, and Dis all jammed together. And distorted into like freakazoid versions of it. It's like 
not just a pastiche, but it's through clearly this like insane, slightly insane vision that Paul Rubens has of like creating this distorted reality. Like I found it just so bizarre that the floor is conscious and, and talking to people and the, the the weirdest one is the chair, I gotta say. There's just something like give me the willies, like the way that he's sitting on the chair and the chair is interacting with him, but everything about it, the shape of the door is like a weird zigzag thing. Like there's weird spinny falling I don't know, it's just crazy. But we get inside this house, as Dan says, festooned with all manner of craziness. Everything is alive. Everything is puppets and super colorful. And we start off with an original Christmas carol, which you just heard a version of, performed ostensibly by the Marine Choir. (laughs) And... I don't know if I can even lay claim to any kind of objectiveness with this review today. I think Dan is here to provide the reality <laughs> check. But I love this opening with the, what you think are the Marines singing this pretty serious, you know, kind of minor key welcome to Pee Wee's Playhouse. That was great. I loved it. I was so, I was really wondering. I had to look it up because they they even have like the marine garb that looks like real marine uniforms, and yeah, it captures that style, that choral style of like the uh, the military bands that you sometimes see. And no, but that, that was good. Yeah, it seems like the performance that you'd see at the White House in the eighties or something. Right. And yes, unfortunately, after doing our research. It is the men's choir from UCLA. They are not authentic Marines. These are some stolen Valor singers that we're witnessing here. But it's convincing. They look like they could be real Marines. And every year, even though I've looked it up, I always I always wonder anew. Oh, did they really get the Marines for this? <laughs> After this musical number by the Marines, Pee-wee announces a laundry list of series regular characters and guest stars who are going to pop up in this Christmas special. And it's a pretty long list. I mean, he lists all the human characters who are usually in the playhouse, like Cowboy Curtis and Miss Yvonne and Jombie the Genie. But then he lists all the puppets and all the animated characters who are in a typical episode. And only then does he list the guest stars. And I'm going to try to recreate the spirit here. I've watched this many, many times, but he says, Frankie Avalon, Charo, the Del Rubio triplets, Annette Funicello, Whoopi Goldberg, Magic Johnson, Grace Jones, K.D. Lang, Little Richard, Joan Rivers, Dinah Shore, Oprah Winfrey, and Princess Jaja. (laughs) One thing I want to point out about that, and maybe we'll get to this, but they didn't include Cher, who was possibly the biggest name out of all of the people in this. I don't know why she was not included, if that was just like a little in-joke about how like they, they didn't mention that they got the biggest fish out of them all there or or what. But I, I was like, 
I actually audibly gasped when Cher appeared because she wasn't in the credits, and that would have been, I would have been excited to see her if she had been in the credits. Oh man, I, I, all these years, I didn't notice she never gets listed. You're absolutely right. Wow. This is why you need a fresh set of eyes on these things. <laughs> and I will say, <laughs> there are some people featured guest stars in this program that I had never heard of before watching this and have never heard of <laughs> subsequently. Well, I looked up the Del Rubio triplets and it said they are a group of country music performers known for their campy style and for appearing on the Pee Wee Christmas special. So I think you're not alone in that. Like, I feel like if that's your top byline on Wikipedia, that's, that's telling you something about how big these stars actually were. I don't know this for sure, but I suspect the Del Rubio triplets may have been some act that Paul Rubens had encountered like a long time ago, <laughs> and he, he wanted to bring them back because <laughs> they are these old women in snow bunny <laughs> outfits with sheer <laughs> stockings, just legs on full display. Yeah, uh, very short shorts. Normally you don't have that with the, old, the older women. No. <laughs> So now we're into the show proper, and it's the standard playhouse set. Pee-wee is dictating his Christmas list to his robot Conky, who is <laughs> taking down the things that Pee-wee wants to ask Santa for. I like the things that he lists a lot, and just starting it off, it's instantly apparent how burned into my memory this whole thing is, because he asks for a wood-burning kit... Make that a deluxe wood-burning kit. He asks for something. One of those dolls that you fill up with the gooey-goopy stuff. What was that a reference to? I was like, what the hell is that? I've never heard of that. Which I've only subsequently found out what it is. So the doll with the gooey-goopy stuff is in fact properly called an oozit. <laughs> I, I mean, I haven't heard this from Paul Rubens's lips, but... This just seems like the sort of thing that would appeal to him and stick in his mind. Pee-wee wraps up his Christmas list with a sign-off I enjoy quite a bit. He says, Most sincerely yours, especially during this holiday season. Your pal, who's been very, 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 very good all this whole year long. Pee-wee, I'm not kidding about how good I've been. Herman. P.S. I really have been good. Please believe me, Santa, please. Please and thank you. I've practically been an angel. <laughs> that was good. One thing that I think happened during the listing of the gift requests was he asks for a yo-yo, and then he gets reminded he already has a yo-yo. And he goes and he finds a yo-yo and he pulls it out, and he does a walk the dog, which was always like a trick for a yo-yo. You like make it roll, but of course it did like a cut to this special effect where the yo-yo turned into a dog and then he picks up the yo-yo and swings it again and it hits what i mean it simulates the effect of hitting the camera and cracking the glass which is a very meta moment for a kid's show yeah when we watched that this time my brother's like well you haven't done that on gauntlet yet you haven't <laughs> broken the camera like that and i would have to figure out i'm sure there's a kaleidoscope effect that you can download into premiere and do that but it was neat. There's always these little art moments that if you listed every single one, we'd be here for hours. But I'm glad that you did appreciate the little bit of claymation they got in there and Pee-wee's big toy closet 
that's all mechanized to like he's got full inventory of all his toys. Yeah, I'll throw in uh, references to my my favorite ones that that I took note of as we were going through this, but obviously you can't hit every single one. Just like in House, you couldn't hit every single weird effect when we talked about that show. I feel like we could That's almost right. do a fantasy draft here, too. Of the Yeah, the we might moments. have to a roster. <laughs> this is when a series regular, Missy Vaughn, the most beautiful woman in Puppetland, arrives. And it kind of establishes an exchange that we see a bunch of times in this special where one of Pee-wee's human friends will arrive at the playhouse with a gift for Pee-wee. And he'll give them a Christmas gift. And Pee-wee's gifts to his friends are always fittingly bizarre. Like, to Miss Yvonne, he gives her Pee-wee-scented cologne. <laughs> Ooh, da, Pee-wee. Now that you're mentioning these, uh, all these guests again and how many there are, going back to the, the intro, it, it gave me a little flash of too many cooks. I don't know if you've ever seen that. How it's just like this unending list of introductions that's going on. <laughs> I can see that. Like way more characters than need to be in a 44-minute TV episode. <laughs> Pee-wee's friends invariably give him fruitcakes. That becomes a recurring gag. Each and every person who's arrived with a present for Pee-wee, it's always a fruitcake. And over the course of the special, we get some humorous variants on this. Like when the king of cartoons comes, Pee-wee says, You didn't bring me a fruitcake, did you? And he says, No! It's two fruitcakes! <laughs> and someone, it might have been Charo, gives him a fruitcake, but gives it the name in Spanish. So Pee-wee doesn't realize it's a fruitcake at first. It's another one of those little variations. Yep. And then in the Hanukkah portion of the show, that goes on for eight nights, so obviously he needs eight fruitcakes. I loved the lampshading of that, by the way. It was like calling attention to the fact that you have to have the Hanukkah portion in there for the sake of uh, inclusion and diversity. But how it was kind of throwaway, that made me laugh. That's right. Gotta meet your quota. So these sequences where he's interacting with his friends and they exchange the gifts is kind of interwoven and it's one of many threads that as dan said kind of get developed over the course of the hour this is a little bit more narratively ambitious than a lot of peewee's playhouse episodes we get some things that get introduced and then developed and then end with a payoff so kudos to peewee for that having maybe a little bit more focus if i'm not mistaken i was looking at the history of the show and this came either, I think, a little after the some strike or something. So there was like a shortened season, and then he did the Christmas special. So he might have had quite a bit of time to, to write this out and think this through. So maybe that's why. I think that's right. Yeah, it was like they only had two normal episodes in the third season, third of five seasons, because of the writer's strike of 1988. So I guess... Writer's strikes, you may know a little bit more about this, but it seems like something that can happen kind of cyclically in Hollywood and screw with the TV season. I know we had a big one in, when was it, 2008? Right, it was right around then. Well, I know it was around then because that was when um, Dr. Horrible came out. Because that was like uh, something that they were doing while the writer's strike was on and they couldn't make new stuff. But yeah, you're right, they come about every couple decades and this was in amidst that, either just before the two episodes or just after. But yeah, they may have all had some time on their hands. 
we also see a couple scenes of Playhouse characters celebrating the season on a small scale because, as Dan said, just about everything in this house is alive, including some very tiny claymation characters. Like, once an episode, somebody opens the refrigerator and the food will be alive in there doing some claymation scene, and here they're, like, ice fishing. The popsicles in the icebox are ice fishing down into the main part of the refrigerator and snagging, like, fish sticks that they pull up, just things from the lower depths of the refrigerator. And we also see the dinosaur family who live... <laughs> this... If you've never seen Pee-wee's Playhouse before... This is just going to sound like narrating a dream or something, <laughs> or just complete nonsense altogether. But there is a small family of dinosaurs, presented via claymation, who live in a mouse hole. So they're also mouse-sized dinosaurs. And it turns out in this special that they are Jewish mouse-sized dinosaurs because they are celebrating Hanukkah in their little mouse-sized cave. I enjoyed the production quality when they would go to claymation. I mean, it seems like anything stop motion is not cheap or easy to do. Maybe it is. I don't really know the specifics of producing it, but uh, when it would like randomly cut to those effects, it wasn't just like a green screen or a from the vaults animation. I was always very impressed. Yeah. Something Pee-wee definitely has going for it is a team of dedicated artists and animators. And it is interesting the different kinds of effects that you see because some obviously take more time and effort than others and some are very, very simple. Like one from, I watched the the Luau episode. It's the, the second episode. I actually watched the first and second episodes of the first season. And there is a moment near the end when they're doing, uh, what's it, a limbo. When you, is that what it's called when you have to go under the bar? Yeah. And... He does two rounds of it where it gets lower. And then on the third one, they've lowered it basically to the ground. There's like two inches of space. And it does this nifty effect where it like flattens his body and pulls him through there. And they just have lots of little throwaway visual moments like that th throughout all the episodes, at least the ones that I've seen. Definitely. And I'm glad you watched the Luau episode. I, I recently watched a handful of episodes. And that one I had a great appreciation for because at the end, everybody is there for the party. All the human characters... And one thing I haven't said is season one has one cast of characters. A lot of them don't carry over to the later seasons because when they started production, I think they were in New York and then they moved to Los Angeles and not everybody followed Pee Wee across the country. Gotcha. I did see in the credits that it would say blank for season one and then blank seasons two onwards. So that explains it, I suppose. Right, so Phil Hartman stayed in New York and was in Saturday Night Live, which was probably a good career move. <laughs> so I got a book, this is kind of out of order, but I got a book recently that it was like a behind-the-scenes history of Pee-wee's Playhouse, and it talked about that early on Pee-wee did a Saturday Night Live appearance, and he had some rule that... Only his own writers could write sketches that Pee-wee appeared in. And so he had to bring all of his writers from his Pee-wee project. And he, with how much improv there is in Pee-wee, I would not even think that there was a writer. <laughs> Apparently there's a team of five. Interesting. But, like, as part of this, Phil Hartman got into the Saturday Night Live writer's room. 
and like started meeting Saturday Night Live people and like got his foot in the door. And so I think Paul Rubens was a little incensed that, uh, you know, that Phil Hartman would go and, and hang with that crowd and be a Saturday Night Live guy instead of a ride or die <laughs> peewee homeboy. That's funny. So this actually predates his SNL appearance. I, I wouldn't have guessed that, but that is, uh, so his, I think his legendary status is probably somewhat escalated because he was killed in the prime of his uh, career, but he's a SNL legend and of course a voice acting legend and nobody has anything but good things to say about him. And it's, it's kind of funny that Pee Wee was maybe his, uh, one of his springboards to rising to fame. I didn't look up the calendar, but I would have assumed that this would have been a later appearance for him, but I guess not. Yeah, somebody who is super knowledgeable might be able to blow holes in the things that I'm saying here, but I, I think they kind of started together in the groundlings. Oh, that's cool. And I'm glad that you mentioned that you have that book because I found it while I was doing some research this past week and I was going to get it for you for Christmas. So now I know not to do that. All right. It's the one by, I think his name is Cassine Gaines or something. Cassine somebody. Okay. So if you, it's possible there have been different books, but that was one that went through like episode by episode. Gotcha. So we've got kind of just different segments that are all interspersed, and you don't necessarily need to hear about them in the proper order, but I think we can't skip by the segment where Pee-wee goes into the magic screen, which is this rolling etch-a-sketch type display with eyes and hands and a squeaky voice and every episode peewee will go in the magic screen and it's like a green screen playground kind of like a very cheap holodeck in star trek you know he's completely in a artificial environment he's got green screen all around him and it will always start by him singing connect the dots fa but I guess he says fa-la-la-la in this one because it's Christmas, but he just says, connect the dots, la-la-la-la. And these dots go around the screen and get connected into some kind of vehicle, usually, that he will then explore this environment in. And it's always different where he's adventuring on the magic screen, like a jungle or a desert or something. Here he's at the North Pole. And the guest star that he meets inside the magic screen is basketball legend Magic Johnson. <laughs> the explanation given is that the magic screen and I are cousins. I really liked that gag. That was that was a funny one. That was one of my laugh out loud moments. I always laugh at that point, too. Back in the playhouse, other friends are arriving and Pee Wee realizes that he hasn't put up his Christmas decorations yet. So the playhouse is bare, and he's got to get the decorations up. And he makes a wish that he, you know, he says, Oh, I wish I had taken the time to get the decorations up. And whenever Pee-wee says that, it's a cue for Jombie the Genie to appear, who is a floating blue head in a bedazzled box in the corner. And I believe the actor is really sitting back there, sticking his head through the hole. Oh, wow. I think he's got like a black collar on and they add like a glow around the face to look like the head is just floating disembodied in there and once an episode Jombie the genie grants a wish so here Pee Wee 
actually makes a request for a second wish. And we get this moment of sinister tension where we think he's broken one of the key genie rules and he's going to suffer Jombie's wrath. But <laughs> Jombie says, okay. The joke there is he says, what do you think it is? Christmas? Pee-wee says, yeah. So that's how he gets it. So the first wish is to deck the halls and just make the playhouse a Christmas wonderland. And everything is instantly festooned with over-the-top decorations. And I like imagining how much extra work went into a whole new set of playhouse decor. I mean, it's overlaid over all the stuff that's normally there, but I'm sure they raided whole warehouses full of kitschy Christmas crap. Yeah, I wanted to pause the frame and just look at everything and admire it. We get an appearance by another common playhouse guest, Reba the Mail Lady, played by S. Apatha Merkerson of Law and Order prominence. Reba's a great character because she's the one who always calls out Pee-wee on his eccentricities. She is a working woman and she doesn't have <laughs> patience for his nonsense. Seemingly alone among the cast in that regard, there was some of it from Captain Carl in season one, Phil Hartman. But Reba the male lady is always the one to like jump when people scream the secret word or <laughs> just not have patience for any of it. Um, she wheels in a huge crate to deliver to the playhouse. And here we get maybe the most surreal scene. Iconic for me. It's just a really strange touch, touchstone moment. Because they pry open the crate and Grace Jones <laughs> emerges who is another one that I've rarely heard of outside of this Christmas special. She was featured in a James Bond movie, but she's kind of this ripped... I don't know if she's completely bald or just has a close-cropped head. African-American model. Very distinctive look. Almost, like, otherworldly. And she emerges from the crate, and she says, You're not the president! <laughs> because apparently, apparently I had to like double take on that apparently this crate was supposed to go to the White House not the Playhouse which begs the question of who mailed Grace Jones to Ronald Reagan's White House <laughs> she then proceeds to perform the little drummer boy in this show-stopping number where there's this big spotlight on her and she has this bizarre outfit made of, like, two pieces of hard plastic that are, like, flexing as she dances. It's it's very strange. Her performance is, like, weirdly sensual. She's, like, slowly peeling her glove off, and she kind of, like, twists and turns around, and there's, like, no back to her dress. And I was, like, kind of surprised that this was in kids' media here. So something that hasn't been touched on yet is that the whole film and... Pee-wee's Playhouse in general is accompanied by score. I don't know if this specific bit, but all throughout otherwise, these keyboard melodies, these like kooky 80s keyboard melodies, performed by none other than Mark Mothersbaugh, frontman of Devo, who would later go on to also score all of Rugrats. 
So, like, if you think of the, like, the little jingle that starts out every Rugrats episode where it goes, It's stuff like that, just all the time, in the background, little keyboard riffs. Oh, interesting. And that it has that musical pedigree is something I've had more of an appreciation for recently just another eccentric artist who's pouring his talent into this project. There's another through line going on in the story where former beach party stars Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello are sitting in a corner of the playhouse making crafty Christmas cards. (laughs) And once Pee Wee sees how they're making these cards, he's like, oh, that's really cool. Make me 500 of each kind. (laughs) There's just this growing tyranny that Pee-wee is exerting over these former teen stars who are now, you know, in their 40s or whatever. And their fun little escapade is now like a Sisyphean task. (laughs) And how he, like... He, he's like a slave driver to them. He's like, you can't go outside and play. Uh, yeah. We're good. hungry. Well, here's some bread and water. <laughs> of course, in amidst all of this, we're seeing appearances not only by the regular Playhouse cast, but also these 80s guest stars and some from earlier, too. Some only appear on TV or via the picture phone, which is this phone booth in the side of the playhouse that also has a video component it feels very 2020 all the video calls that's that's something i've thought of many times this year is peewee's picture phone now that everybody's on zoom but uh, some people who appear this way remotely are Whoopi goldberg and oprah winfrey also dinah shore and joan rivers So, you know, it kind of makes sense. Joan Rivers and Oprah Winfrey are definitely TV personalities. So it kind of makes sense they would pop in on a screen. Also, I imagine Oprah was probably one of the bigger names. Maybe Whoopi Goldberg, too. They couldn't be there in person. I was thinking if Cher wasn't the biggest name in 1988, then it might have been Whoopi Goldberg. Because I think this was right around the time when she was an A-list Hollywood talent. But, of course, her bit is pretty funny because she calls in begging to be in the Christmas special. And Pee-wee says, sorry, we're all fill up. We're all full. (laughs) Maybe I can squeeze you in two years from now. The king of cartoons arrives, who's always been one of my favorite characters. He's got this elaborate costume, you know, a big royal robe and this green like tuxedo with like a leopard print sash. And he always comes in with some device to play a cartoon on. This is one character who got recast when the production location changed. But for most of the show's run, he's played by an actor named William Marshall, who's maybe best known for playing Blackula in a series of blaxploitation horror films. But he comes in with his big remote and with Annette Funicello's help presents Christmas Comes But Once a Year, a public domain 1936 Christmas cartoon 
So, of course, I had to feature that one in the first Gauntlet Christmas episode. Yeah, it's these King of Cartoons bits where I really noticed the the Gauntlet inspiration. You cut away to some old-timey film or something, and it's just like a, a diversion for a few minutes, and then you hop back to the A few minutes story. is generous. These are very truncated cartoons. They edit with liberty. A, a free hand in how blatantly they abridge these short films. Did you uh, feature the the full version or the, the edited oh, down version? Oh, I took the full film and I included it in its entirety. Gotcha. Snow starts falling outside the playhouse. And everybody runs outside to play, except Frankie and Annette, whom Pee-wee insists must remain and continue their work. <laughs> but this starts a really interesting sequence, because if you have watched... The rest of Pee-wee's Playhouse, it's actually really rare for them to go outside. It almost all takes place in the building. And here we get some new set pieces, where it's probably all still on a soundstage. It looks everything very artificial, but we get a scene where they're tromping through the snow and making snow angels, and we get a whole frozen pond where the characters are ice skating. And it's a treat to see ice skating puppets jittering around on their marionette strings. Right. Uh, I noticed they used the snowy playhouse model from the stop motion opening as like a set piece off in the background behind these snowy woods that they're hanging out in. And I thought that was pretty cool. I don't I couldn't tell how big it actually was. I mean, it's supposed to be like it's off way in the distance, but it looks like it's probably pretty big. This is when Cowboy Curtis shows up, who is, without a doubt, the biggest star to emerge from Pee-wee's stable of actors. Lawrence Fishburne, who of course would go on to be Morpheus in the Matrix movies, and he's had some other prominent roles. He's on the sitcom Blackish now. He's a well-known household name, I would say. Yeah, when I was watching the first episode... And he came out, I was like, Morpheus, what are you doing here? <laughs> this is before he took whatever pill and woke up to reality. Yeah. <laughs> and so Cowboy Curtis, he's a pretty, he's, he's, if there's a sidekick to Pee-wee, it's Cowboy Curtis. He tends to get some good airtime in the episodes. And so here we get a scene or two of them interacting. They bring a snowman to life by staring at it. And we get a little cartoon effect that my brother said scared him when he was a little kid. The... I can believe that. It's kind of creepy. I, I really like that moment. <laughs> and then they hear a sound of guitars coming over the hills. And it is the <laughs> heavenly intonations of the Del Rubio triplets. Would you like to elucidate on that at all, Dan? No, I mean, it's just... Because I, I had never heard of the Del Rubio triplets. And then there are these bizarrely dressed old women doing like, a, I guess it, this one, they were like kind of a country number. And I was like, what? One of many moments where I'm like, what am I actually watching here? Then, of course, it's time for ice skating with Little Richard and the magic screen. Little Richard is struggling to ice skate, keeps falling down. And Pee Wee tells him he just has to stick with it and try, try again. 
after which Pee-wee takes to the ice and does this masterful ice capades routine, only for it to turn out that he cut to a stunt double, because his stunt double comes out of the back and he says, Did I do okay, Pee-wee? That was my biggest laugh of the whole special, because I thought the joke was going to be done, you know, you expect him to fall on his butt, and then he's amazing. And it's very obviously a stunt double. Um, I don't even. I might have even noticed it if I was a kid. How it's like a different, different guy's face. And I was like, oh, that's that's just a funny little throwaway. And then when they pull out the stunt double, that brought that joke to a new level for me. Again, lampshading some aspect of the creation of the show. We get a moment of marionette Randy, who is a frequent troublemaker on Pee-wee's Playhouse, grousing about how he doesn't believe in Santa Claus, and this kind of forebodes him creating trouble later on, as he always does. We also get a Penny cartoon. Now, Penny cartoons, you get one in every Pee-wee's Playhouse. They are these claymation shorts featuring a girl who has pennies for eyes, I believe they were created by Ardman Studios, the Wallace and Gromit people. I think they did a lot of the claymation for Pee-wee. Okay. But prior to reading that book that I mentioned, I never knew what to make of the Penny cartoons. Because they always seemed very random to me, and I wasn't really sure who Penny was. Apparently how these cartoons were created is every episode they had a different little girl tell a story. And then they just animated whatever she said. That's pretty funny. I, that's a cool cool way to get those in there. It adds a lot knowing that. <laughs> but she here she just tells a story about how she celebrates Christmas and that she likes to watch Road, with Mor- Road to Morocco with Bob Hope. <laughs> So just another instance of old movies and old media that outside of this Christmas presentation, children of 1986 may never have heard of. And and certainly not now. I'm just kind of listing things at this point. <laughs> but I think it's important to notice, but I think it's important to note that Dinah Shore calls Pee Wee on the picture phone and she says she's got a song for him. And she starts singing The Twelve Days of Christmas. And of course, for someone as hyperactive as Pee-wee, The Twelve Days of Christmas is a pretty long carol when it comes to Christmas songs. It's cumulative. It gets longer and longer as you go. And Pee-wee doesn't want to stick around in front of the video phone. And so he tries something that I wonder how many people have attempted this year. And he props up a mannequin of himself that he has sitting by the video phone inside the booth to quote-unquote listen to this song as it goes on and Pee-wee leaves. What it made me think of is, we talked about last week the show Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide, which is a favorite of mine. And one recurring bit in Ned's is when the characters need to sneak away they always pull out cardboard cutouts of themselves and put them there, and then they can effectively sneak away because people won't notice they're gone. It made me think of that. Well, there you go. We're getting towards the end of the hour now, and we get a couple checked cultural boxes. We get some shoehorned-in multicultural segments. Uh, One is the 
Mexican-Spanish sequence featuring common Playhouse guest Ricardo, who was a late-season replacement for the earlier Tito, who was the lifeguard who worked at the pool behind the Playhouse. Uh, but, but here Ricardo uh, introduces guest star Charo to perform Feliz Navidad as Pee-wee Wax a Pinata. That was another good moment with Pee-wee stumbling around in, in the background as uh, I think that's when Charo was singing and he's like way off from the pinata. Yeah, you've got Conky the robot dancing with maracas and th- when the pinata is burst, there's confetti raining down everywhere in slow motion. Just any moment in this special where they could introduce some new colorful bobble some just loud, eccentric, kitschy thing, they seize it with gusto. And the Spanish sequence is followed immediately thereafter by the Hanukkah portion of the show. That, as Dan said, they lampshade pretty effectively. Playhouse guest Mrs. Renee sings the dreidel song, and we see the Jewish dinosaurs. And for the dreidel song sing-along, she instructs viewers to follow the bouncing zombie head. <laughs> and we get zombie's disembodied head bouncing along with the words, which I had to call out because that is a moment I've directly lifted for Gauntly. Another Christmas episode, I had the bouncing freak slice head where I had my friend wear a green screen suit and keyframed his head bouncing along, sing-along words. That's great. Frankie and Annette do finally finish their interminable tasks. They finish making all 1,000 Christmas cards. And so now everybody is all together, and they gather round to light up the Christmas tree. And what did you think of this Christmas tree, Dan? It was not what I was expecting. It had an odd look to it. I didn't like go and replay it again to try and make out what it actually was. So on top of this Christmas tree, there's like Saturn, a ringed planet okay. instead of a star. And there's all kinds of things jutting out of this Christmas tree. It's like silver aluminum. And I think there's a barbecue grill partway up. Yeah, I think I noticed that. I was try- like, there was weird. It was just a lot going on with it. And I, I want to go back and-, and take a closer look at it. This special rewards rewatching, I feel, and especially this moment. I think there's an Etch-A-Sketch with a drawing of the Mona Lisa hanging off the tree. There's a model train set going around the tree, but not on the floor. It's like mounted halfway up the tree on like a frame. We only see everything for a moment because Randy pops up and unplugs the Christmas tree. And... Bah humbugs their celebration. With a, a very astute observation on the consumerism and corporate driven interest of the American Christmas season. <laughs> Which I think Pee Wee is maybe a key perpetrator of. <laughs> Pee Wee consumes corporate culture, even if he spits it out in a very strange way. But never fear, because we get the. Linus from Peanuts moment, very briefly, when Magic Screen pulls up and presents a very truncated telling of the nativity story. 
this lasts fully 20 <laughs> seconds. I just counted it. But she, she tells the story of Jesus' birth in 20 seconds. And what's more, I feel like this was probably one of the last network specials that tried to work in the biblical Christmas story. Yeah, I was really surprised to see it. It definitely evoked the, the Peanuts special, which climaxes with a uh, Bible verse. And I, again, I was surprised that, uh, especially in a show like this wacky and postmodern to like include, even if in a hand wavy sort of way, the earnest Christian origin of Christmas was uh, unexpected. So now everybody feels good again. They're all united in Christmas cheer. And they share some Christmas carols, which are similarly abridged. This part always makes me laugh because Pee-wee is instructing them what carols to sing. And he'll call out the title, and then they'll basically just sing the first line of the song before he moves on to the next thing. It's just kind of representative of the tone of the show as a whole, jumping from thing to thing. For instance, he says, Jingle Bells! Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. It came upon a midnight clear. It came upon a midnight clear. Deck the halls. And it's just jumping from yeah. song to song. And then the payoff is sleigh bells. And they start to sing sleigh bells ring. And it's, no, it's actually sleigh bells that I hear. Because this is the moment that Santa Claus finally appears. He comes down the playhouse chimney with some bad news for Pee-wee. Because it turns out that Pee-wee's Christmas list from the beginning was so long and greedy that Santa <laughs> didn't have toys left for the rest of the children in the world. And so Pee-wee gets nothing. This is a brutal revelation. <laughs> and frankly, I've always found it to be a pretty excessive punishment. I mean, Pee-wee may have his faults, but he is constantly playing host to his friends. I would say he's pretty generous with his time. You know, he always shares his home and his playthings. So as far as like what a kid would be expected to do to be good, I, I, I don't think Pee-wee has erred too seriously. <laughs> but luckily in exchange for sacrificing his Christmas presents, he's able to tag along with Santa and his sleigh for the annual Christmas voyage, and they take off into the night as Dinosaur's Endless Christmas Carol continues in the background. That was a good payoff on that. I, I enjoyed the joke as it was going about how long that, that carol is compared to all the other ones. And then when it cut back and it was on the 15th and it was like, I forget what it was. It was like nachos or something like that. And then at the end you see it's the 500th day of Christmas. That was, that was a good runner. And that's Pee-wee's Playhouse, the Christmas special from 1988. Um, I look forward to what you are able to do with that mishmash, Dan. Well, <laughs> stream of consciousness. It's, I, I find it telling about the show and its uh, pace that this is probably half the length of a normal movie, approximately, if not even shorter than half. And we still managed to probably talk longer than normal about the things that happen in this. It, it's just a million things going on. Nothing lasts more than like 30 seconds at a time. And, and trust me, there's stuff that we left out. There's, oh yeah, There plenty. are bits and pieces we skipped over. Now is the time when we 
elucidate some things we noticed in this film which are good. So before we dive in, I'm going to say that most of my observations were not necessarily specific to the holiday special, but they also applied to the episodes of Pee-wee's Playhouse that I saw in addition to the holiday special, but certainly apply to the holiday special too, the Christmas special, excuse me. Well, I think that is a good point. This is something which exists in a larger context of a TV series, and I think it's representative of the show as a whole. Would you agree? The ones I saw, yeah. I mean, obviously the the big difference is it's longer, it has more guest stars, and the narrative felt, as you mentioned earlier, a little bit more ambitious and thought through. But I would say in general, very representative of the tone and the manic energy of the show. Yes. It's stylistically consistent. For sure. So I've paid some lip service to it already. But I think the strongest thing that Pee-wee's Playhouse has got going for it is just the team of artists required to bring all of this madness to life. Just everything that you see, you can tell that the work of puppeteers went into it, and animators, and designers, and decorators, and fabricators, and costumers, and composers. You know, they talk about things being bigger than the sum of their parts, but... This has so many parts, it might be less than the sum of its parts. It just there's, there's so much that goes into it. It's just an explosion across all your senses. It's one of those shows that, as you mentioned, I can see rewarding rewatch just because it is so full of details and touches and just like a sheer quantity of artistic vision. You can tell that Paul Rubin is kind of like the chief of that, but he's not the lone voice in the room at all. Right. Which is what makes me a little jealous seeing this program. It's like, wow, I wish Gauntley had, you know, a dedicated claymation studio and stuff. But I guess that's the magic of paying people. Cash, you know, that's the, uh, I forget what he says about it. Always useful or something. Oh, yes. Always a practical gift. <laughs> or you could pull the from Network, the guy who says it's the lifeblood. It oh, flows yeah. flows through nations. <laughs> yeah, like you said, it's very dense visually. It's a house that lives and breathes. Every frame is jam-packed with kitschy knickknacks. I was watching on the Blu-ray, and when they have all the Christmas stockings for the different characters in the playhouse, like every puppet has got a stocking on the mantle. And if it's a puppet, it's a really small stocking. And of course, because Pee Wee asked for all the toys in the world, he has two enormous stockings (laughs) and Jombie has like a turban pinned to the wall. And there's a pterodactyl foot for Terry, the pterodactyl, but They've all got, like, names written on them. And when I paused on the Blu-ray, I could read all the little puppet stockings. Like, I could press my face right up against the TV and read them all. And quick aside about the Blu-ray. There's a featurette on there about how when they produced it for television, it was actually in standard definition because they... They filmed on film cameras, but then to do all the effects editing, they 
converted it to 4 by 3 standard definition for television, and then did the effects with it. So to do a Blu-ray master at all, they had to get all the original film elements together again, and they could do that because apparently Paul Rubens has all of it at his house still. Oh, wow. Like, including all the footage of, like, you know, all the animations, and it specifically showed a moment when Pee-wee is, like, looking into the refrigerator, and you've got the animated food element, and then also the element of Pee-wee on the outside looking in, and just that he had all those bits and pieces that they could then, like, dump into a computer, and it could visually match with the TV cut, and, like, stitch it all back together. What a time to be alive. Indeed. That reminds me of, as I've been getting back into film as a part of this podcast and reading stuff, one of my favorite subgenre of stories is lost and then recovered films. And like a lot of classics are in that boat where, for whatever reason, like the film got destroyed or something, and then it's subsequently found, like... Uh, the Passion of Joan of Arc, the French silent film, widely considered a masterpiece. They lost all of the original cuts of it. Essentially, he still had his B footage, and he was able to reassemble the movie, in essence, from like shots that he didn't think were the best shots, basically. And so for a long time, we had basically the film, but like not the original, the best of each shot, like the, the true version. And then they discovered in a hospital closet the original reel. It's apparently he shipped one copy out to a hospital to show to sick people. And just the stories of, of rediscovering these physical film artifacts. Another really famous one is The Magnificent Ambersons, was Orson Welles' film, I believe it right after Citizen Kane. It took like this dense and sad novel and basically made what was going to be his second masterpiece. And he had to go promote it in Brazil. And the studio disliked his vision of it so much that not only did they recut it and reshoot parts of it while he was down in Brazil, but they burned the originals so that he couldn't fight to get it back in there. And to this day, we don't have all of the his original stuff. They kept some of it in the final cut, but there's this... This investigator who's basically at the start of 2020 said he's going to make it his life's mission to see if he can find the rest of the Magnificent Ambersons footage. And he had some leads that basically there's one shipping manifesto that said crates and crates of film for the Magnificent Ambersons was sent to Orson Welles while he was abroad and probably got left there because they don't have any manifesto of it returning. And the theory is maybe he was editing it while he was abroad um, with the original stuff and left it there, assuming that he still had the the stuff back at home. And that it's very possible that a film collector, because there's apparently a small handful of like wealthy people who just hoard old film reels, that there's someone somewhere who has this hoarded that he just got just got their hands on and either don't know what it is or isn't being forthright about having it or something. So... That would be an amazing one. Of course, as soon as he announced that he was going to do that, it's been 2020, you can't really go anywhere. So he hasn't had any updates since then in the past year. But 
Anyway, sorry for that tangent, but I, I, I find myself fast, especially in the digital age where everything is backed up on clouds, like the necessity of finding and keeping these, these physical film reels is just very fascinating to me. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for him retaining all the original elements and the search for lost films in general. I'm hoping somebody will weasel the copy of The Day the Clown Cried away from Jerry Lewis. That's what I'm <laughs> holding out for. Couple other good things about the Pee Wee's Playhouse Christmas special. I appreciate the absolute maelstrom of 80s and earlier stars, so called. Just all these guest personalities. So you've said that Cher was probably the biggest star. Whoopi Goldberg, also pretty big. Oprah Winfrey, definitely on the rise. Yeah, I mean, I think now. Oprah Winfrey is easily the biggest name here. Magic Johnson is pretty famous too. He he's become a media overlord type. I was kind of surprised. I guess Oprah at this point was a a talk show host. Was that what she was? And like maybe a, an emerging tycoon, but not quite the billionaire she is today. Right. You probably didn't hear about her book club all the time, and <laughs> she wasn't a titan of industry, but I think she did ever show. And. We've touched on it a couple times, but I also like that despite the randomness, things always changing focus and popping in and out, that this does develop actually multiple story threads that get development and resolution. We've got the Frankie and Annette tyranny plot. We've got Randy and his dissatisfaction with the Christmas season. We've got Pee-wee's greed, and we have all the fruitcakes that are given to Pee-wee to the point that in the end of the special, he actually builds a new wing of the playhouse built entirely of fruitcake. That was a, a good runner. I enjoyed that one too. And like they had good sound effects whenever he would move the, the fruitcakes, like clunking sounds and stuff. And I actually have a cousin who is a very minor celebrity. He was on a local radio show and he now does a podcast and he kind of like, he'll go to local events type thing and one of his signature things is he's always made fruitcakes for Christmas time. And anyone can go on their website. And it's basically just like, I guess, e-commerce. You're just buying one from him. But it's it's almost like you're participating in a family tradition of receiving a gift of a fruitcake from my, my cousin. So I, I appreciated that. That's funny. I've never quite gotten the vilification of fruitcake. What, what is your sense on fruitcake, Dan? So I actually haven't had fruitcake in a long, long time. I don't have any strong opinions about it just because I haven't had it really. I get, I but I do remember when I was young and I ate fruitcake, probably with that cousin and, and his mom, my my aunt, that I was like, this, if you were to tell me something is called a fruitcake, this is not what I would have expected. It's like, I remember it being kind of syrupy and nutty and stuff. Mm -hmm. I've also only had it a couple times. It seems to have a little bit of a stigma, almost like fruitcake itself is like this cultural throwback that it, you know it doesn't have such prominence now it's just a trapping of christmas that has to be paid lip service to right i think of it in the vein of meatloaf or of things you serve in jello for dinner where to varying extents you just don't see those anymore it's just like a symbol of before you had really good ingredients in grocery stores it's like something on the cover of a 70s cookbook exactly yeah but I will say, when I have had it, I have not hated it. So just in the spirit of fairness 
to kind of dispel this critical eye that Pee-wee casts on Fruitcake. <laughs> Did you have other good things to point out, Dan? I had a few. One that is maybe just implicit, but I want to call out is I find Paul Rubens to be really charismatic. He's He has sufficient energy and charm to lead a show like this and have it despite all of the everything around it actually have a clear vision and like a through line and he kind of like controls the show still and obviously he's playing an extremely exaggerated character but i definitely can see how he would build a cult following and groups of friends he's just got this magnetic charm about him and i enjoyed him yeah one of the things that we should put in our multimedia section for this post is an appearance that Pee-wee made on David Letterman, I think in 1983, so David Letterman looks pretty young. You know, Pee-wee can still be engaging even absent his puppets and all the other art elements, because in this appearance on David Letterman, he just tells this long, shaggy dog joke that goes on and on and eventually reaches a punny punchline. You know, it would be a groaning dad joke, but he, like, collapses on the stage, rolling around laughing at his own joke, and we crack up every time. It's a hilarious bit of stand-up. Oh, that's good. You gotta send it to me. And another thing about him is, I know that he's mainly known as this, but he has had another... It's not the only thing he's ever acted in. So I was listening to a different film podcast recently, and they were talking about the film version of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And apparently, Paul Rubens is not only in that, but he is very good in it, and like one of the highlights, at least according to this podcast host that I was listening to. So it actually, by itself, made me want to go out and watch that movie. It is interesting where he pops up. He's good friends with Tim Burton, obviously, So one place he pops up is he's one of the trick-or-treaters in Nightmare Before Christmas. He was in the movie Mystery Men as a fart-powered superhero. Okay, I Um, remember that. There's this movie called Buddy about a woman raising a gorilla inside her, like, penthouse apartment. And he plays this naturalist who is, like, anti-gorilla. Like, oh... Gorillas would tear your face off. He shows up pretty sporadically, but he's he's out there. And this is probably something I should have brought up at the start and maybe not in our discussion of good things. <laughs> but I, I think you do have to acknowledge uh, Pee-wee has not had a spotless record. Paul Rubens has, uh, at points, had some tarnish on his legacy. So I do want to talk about this. Yeah, maybe that's a, yeah. Is is now the time? Sure, we can go into it. Because I actually do not consider it a not so good thing. So I read about it and basically he was arrested for being horny. And like, it's not, it shouldn't be a crime to be horny. He was arrested at an adult theater publicly exposing himself. And man, if you're going to be a weird guy in Hollywood... I am not at all surprised that you're also a horny guy in in Hollywood. So I think I'm sure that he was piled upon for that. And I have to say, I don't hold it against him. And especially because it really seems like 
there's a huge generosity in the spirit of Pee-wee. Like that's an undercurrent of the show that I really appreciate is nobody's judged for being what they are. Like there's a, there's a huge amount of diversity. No, not really commented on. It's just like, there's a lot of people of different or different ethnic origins, different skin colors, a huge amount of, I was noticing on the guest stars as I was looking through it is the only white man is Frankie Avalon out of like 15 or something guest stars, only one white man. I think that tells you something about how like, He's not just a run-of-the-mill, get-the-big-Hollywood-names-think-in-the-normal-Hollywood way type. It's also, even despite all the silliness, there is, like, an inclusion aspect to the show. Like, I, I ha- haven't really dug into, like, I don't know, is, like, is he gay? Does the gay community have anything to say about Paul Rubens or the queer community or anything? But I could see this show potentially being a touch point for that because... It has this non-judgmental, inclusive spirit about it. And to me, if you add up all of that and what the extent of his actual crimes were, I, I have no negative feeling towards Paul Rubens, despite as what you might say is a tarnished reputation. Right. It's certainly brighter now. He's he's definitely bounced back. He had to lie low for a little while in the early 90s. But I think you're absolutely right. I think that if you're going to prosecute people for doing that sort of thing in an adult theater why have an adult theater i don't think people are there to appreciate (laughs) the artistic merits of the films i think they are there to do certain other things to be titillated let's say yes although i will mention there was a phase i think it was in the 70s where porn films did get a widespread release so there's like a handful of Ones you may have even heard of, like, I think... Deep Throat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, you probably have. Have you seen Boogie Nights? I actually have not. That is one I want to see. Okay, I'm going to cue that up. That's one of my favorites that didn't make the original 100, and it's about the backdrop of the porno chic era. Right. I have one other random thought. I found a lot of connections to... The show that I saw so much when I was in middle school and high school because my little siblings were watching it, but Blue's Clues. There was a lot of things that made me think of Blue's Clues. For one, Paul Rubens actually looks a lot like Steve from Blue's Clues. And they both have like signature outfits. And they're both like distinctive and charismatic hosts. They both talk to the camera directly and are actually quite good at it. Like actually make you feel like you're being talked to, which reading some of the behind the scenes stuff from Blue's Clues that I have through the years, apparently they like they they did auditions for hundreds of potential Steves and they had kid test audiences and the kids would always get bored and not talk back. And Steve was the only one that they actually talked back to. Like apparently it's tough to actually engage a camera and have it be something that people respond to. And I feel like Pee-wee is also good at that. There's also lots of interactions with what would be inanimate objects in the house, but are actually alive and are like play key parts in the stories and are like friends who live in the house. And lastly, there's in uh, Blue's Clues, every episode, there's a section where Steve skidoos into a frame. It's usually a picture frame. They might do a TV every now and then, but I think it's usually a picture frame which kind of behaves in the same way as the magic, what is it called? The magic 
picture the box? Yeah, the magic screen. You're right. The magic You're totally screen. right that the skidoo is the magic screen. And again, when you're in there, like the laws of physical reality don't behave the same way. So I just kept thinking about Blue's Clues as I I was watching this. Obviously, Blue's Clues is a completely different tone and even audience, I would guess. But uh, definitely, I I would imagine that the people who made Blue's Clues had seen Pee Wee's and had picked a few things that they liked and wanted to uh, carry over. I think you're probably right. Uh, You also mentioned somebody's costume a moment ago. That is one more good thing I'll throw in is that everybody has new Christmas costumes in this one. Like Cowboy Curtis has this crazy, enormous purple scarf with cowboy boots embroidered on it. And Missy Vaughn has like a Christmas tree dress and ribbons and mistletoe built into her bouffant hairdo. So th- I, I would say that that's another thing I try to borrow in Gauntlet is every Christmas, everybody's got to have a new Christmas costume. <laughs> a specific holiday theme one. Yeah, that's good. All right. Well, let's get a little more critical. One not so good thing I'll throw out is that because of this kind of spastic ADHD hyperactive approach throughout, nothing gets lingered on. I guess that has its merits. You keep things moving, you keep things fresh. But there are some of these things I'd like to have a little more of. It always bugged me how severely the cartoons get cut down. That's the biggest thing. Is, you know, if you have a a designated royal person there to present a film, it kind of gives the impression that this is something that you should consider and give some weight to. And then after 20 seconds, it's over, and it usually, what you saw doesn't make any sense. And some of these cartoons I had seen previously on, you know, like bargain bin VHSs, and I knew that they were longer. And why not just give us a little more of it? It would be free. Just show us a little more of the cartoon. Yeah, I agree. I I mean, a limitation of this format is you're not going to have a emotional through line just because of how chopped up everything is and how you know this the spirit of the show is you get to do a little bit of everything there's so much invention in every single episode but it's not without trade-offs i have this in my notes under not so good but i guess it is a good thing it is Paul Rubin's charisma allows him to get away with a lot of improv that other performers would struggle to make work. Like, especially in the standard episodes, a lot of the show is just him, like you said, talking to the camera and, like, doing goofy things. Like, he puts on an enormous pair of underwear, like, and pretends that it's a swing and is, like, swinging around on the giant underwear. Or he's like making fruit salad. And what makes it work is that he's just always like laughing at his own jokes. And I don't know, he's he's just always at 100% energy and like bouncing from thing to thing. So he pulls it off, but it is substantially thin. There's not a lot of meat to what he's doing much of the time. Again, I think it's... <laughs> It's what the show was designed to do, so, you know, you can complain about it, but if that's what you're going there for, is of him being this kind of goofy guy, I can't really hold it against the show for, for doing that, but I see what you mean, how there's a certain featherweight silliness to it all. I Yeah, just part of me wonders, like, 
if you had all of these artists standing by to make things and you decided to focus on something, what would be the result? <laughs> like, I kind of want to grab Pee-wee by the shoulders and be like, okay, you've assembled all these people. Now, what are you going to have them do? But stay on topic. Right. Like, let's have an actual four minute story about the dinosaurs instead of just popping your head in there for literally 15 seconds and then popping out. Right. And I was mostly just very curious going into this pick for our podcast, how someone other than me would perceive the show, because <laughs> this is not something I've had much opportunity to pour over with many people other than maybe my little brother. That's a good a good segue to a thought that I've had, and I've been trying to find the right episode to say this, which is that I don't know if it's just the surreality of 2020, or if it's like me as a my maturing or evolving brain, or perhaps short-circuiting brain, but I found I really enjoy weird stuff more than I used to. Like things that are just inventive and unusual and unpredictable and work on their own wavelength. I find that more appealing than I ever used to. And conversely, things that are more conventional drama or mainstream, not weird, hasn't connected quite as much. So I don't know what that is. But all that to say is I got a kick out of it. And I could see, like, I know it's known for being a quote-unquote cult show where it has a small number of people who are really passionate about it. And I can see this being the exact type of show to fit that mold because it has so much its own energy and voice. But I could also see, like, for example, I don't think my wife would like this at all. One reason is, again, here's another tangent. My wife has a annoying voice rule where if like a main stylistic feature is characters having annoying voices, she just can't, she can't stand it. She won't be put up with it at all, even if it's otherwise good. And this would absolutely fail that test. It also <laughs> rules out a lot of animated shows, like even good ones. But yeah, this one, his voice... It even graded on me a little bit when he does like the laugh and the. I, I had a headache this morning and I was watching uh, some a couple of the episodes like I mentioned, and I was like, not not good to watch this with the headache. I want to cut in to say when he has the phone call with Oprah, I don't know <laughs> what cre what caused this, what inspired this reaction, but while Oprah's talking to him. He's, like, yelling at her. <laughs> I, I can't even convey it until you see it, but she's like, Hi! And he says, Hi! Is this, is this Pee-wee? Who wants to know? I don't know. It's just, she, he's, like, yelling extra nasally at Oprah. And I have to imagine some of that is intentional, like the contrast of, like, a very refined celebrity doing, like, their good, normal appearance and the contrast of that being this ridiculous man child like flailing about and shrieking and talking in that voice yeah so is now the time to rate well i have a i have a gimmick oh please go go ahead and gimmick <laughs> give us a gimmick i wanted to recast the guest stars for 2020 like if this was filmed 22 years or sorry 32 years later is that right 32 god damn Nope. Yeah, I mean, I was born in 88, so and I'm 32, so that's it. But who would be who would be the replacement? And I'm going to tell you what I got. 
Okay. Do it. So the, the UCLA choir group, I feel like there's a thing now in uh, holidays, but just in general, of popularity of acapella groups. So I feel like, I don't think pentatonics is silly enough to appear, but I feel like you could have rockapella or straight no chaser. And I landed on straight no chaser because they also have a signature Christmas song where they do 12 days of Christmas mashed up with Africa by Toto. For Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello, this is one I had trouble with, but the best I came up with is probably Zac Efron and Vanessa Hudgens. The thing is, I don't think they like appear in stuff anymore. I think Frankie Avalon and Annette like became this brand um, where they would often appear in things together, which is not true of Zac Efron and Vanessa Hudgens of High School Musical fame. But I think they have a similar cachet, maybe not quite as high a cachet, but like a similar teen heartthrob type thing. The other one I came up with is maybe you could do uh, Chris Pratt and Amy Poehler, who I think are also like charismatic stars and have like a a thing that they were on together. But again, they don't appear together. So I landed on Zac Efron and Vanessa Hudgens. Chara was the easiest one to recast. Today, that would absolutely be Shakira. The Del Rubio triplets. <laughs> I don't know anything about them. And I was like, what is the equivalent of... an Fairly obscure, like somewhat cheesy, comedically oriented group of women country singers. I wanted it to be an all women's group, but I just, I could not think of a single one. The best I came up with is the Aquabats could appear (laughs) in that spot. Maybe they might be giants, but I think the Aquabats would, would be my pick. For Whoopi Goldberg, a, like a famous actress, comedian who's black and a woman. There's not that many of those these days. Wanda Sykes came to mind. I I would actually, I'm going to bring her up in a minute. I would slot her somewhere else, but the best I could come up with is Viola Davis, who is a very famous actress. She's not really a comedian and I don't think she's quite as high profile as Whoopi was, but I would put Viola Davis there. Magic Johnson was easy. That would be LeBron James today. And if you couldn't land LeBron, maybe you could get Shaq. He would be the backup. Grace Jones, I would recast. So my requirements here is it's someone who would be like kind of weirdly sexy and is not necessarily American and like doesn't feel quite right on a kid's TV show. And the best I could come up with is Camilla Cabello, who is a a, a pop star. I think Ariana Grande would actually be better. So I, I think I'm actually going to go with her. Because the thing about Grace Jones rules, Camila Cabello does not rule. She sucks. And Ariana Grande, not my all-time favorite, but she would she would be better. So I'm actually going to pick her, even though she doesn't, she's, you know, she's American. But I think she could bring the same slinky energy if she wanted to. For K.D. Lang, and by the way, this was should have been on my list of good things. K.D. Lang's version of Jingle Bell Rock is a straight-up bop. I want to like get the MP3 of that and add it to my rotation. That was by far my favorite musical performance of the the special. She's also one that I had never heard of before or since. I guess she does have some high profile songs, Pro- probably bigger in Canada than here. <laughs> probably. My requirement for her is it had to be a actress slash musician with kind of like a slightly quirky energy, and so I came up with. Uh, Zoe Deschanel, Deschanel, how do you say her last name? Deschanel, Deschanel. You probably know better than I do. But yeah, Zoe Deschanel, I think would would fit there. For Little Richard, you need an an R&B legend. 
Now, Little Richard did like a little bit of physical comedy here. So the guy that I picked, I think is too old to do that. But I think he would have the same presence. And that is Stevie Wonder would be an amazing replacement for Little Richard these days. Joan Rivers. So she's like a comedian, actress, icon type. You don't have too many of those. I thought about Amy Schumer. She's a little too smarmy, though. I don't think she would quite fit. This is where I landed on Wanda Sykes. I think she would be probably the best we could do, even though she's not on the same level quite as much as Joan Rivers. Uh, for Dinah Shore, you need a aging musician icon who is also like kind of famous in their own right just for being famous. And I came up with Debbie Harry, the blondie. I think she would be a good dinosaur replacement. I don't know if she would sing 12 Days of Christmas with quite the same austerity, but I think she would work. Uh, Oprah Winfrey was another easy one for me, although I initially wanted to have another black talk show host. There is another one who's kind of a rising mogul talk show host, and that's Ellen DeGeneres. And I think she would she would be a, an excellent fit on a show like this, and she would replace Oprah Winfrey. Zsa Zsa Gabor. We need uh, someone who is like a famously s- sexy icon who is now in their upper vintage years. I came up with Christy Brinkley, who played Jerry Gary's wife. Is it Jerry? His name changes a lot. Jerry's wife on Parks and Rec. It's also Billy Joel's wife for many years. She's still amazingly beautiful. She's not quite, not nearly the icon that Jaja was, but I think she would have the same electric aged beauty appearance that princess Zsa does here and lastly for Cher it's like who could I recast as Cher well I think you could still have Cher play Cher why not she's still this legend in fact she's become a different type of icon like the original gay icon if you really wanted to recast it to have someone in a similar spot in their career arc I think Lady Gaga would fit someone who is very famous for being a performer but also like has some stuff kind of outside of that in acting and just in being a, a public figure. And I think Lady Gaga would fit the bill. So anyways, that was my uh, my recasting of the of the celebrity guest stars for, for 2020. Pee-wee, if you're listening, <laughs> get Netflix on the phone. He did say there would be uh, recurring ones and he's got he's got the deal with, with Netflix. Maybe he could have Whoopi Goldberg appear this time as a callback to that. That's right. Well, I'm glad that you came prepared with that, and more so, I'm glad that I came with some musical accompaniment <laughs> at the start, because I know Dan always goes above and beyond. That was good. So, we're taking things bold new places here on the podcast. We're getting experimental with the structure. I like it. So, now I think it's time that we render a verdict and give a rating. So, as our guest, Dan, can you tell us, is Pee-wee's Playhouse the Christmas special from 1988? Good. This is one of the toughest ones yet to rate. I don't know. I had a really hard time thinking about it. For me, I landed on the thing that seemed fair is this special is good. I still enjoyed it quite a bit. It's got a lot of creativity in it. I had trouble like overall connecting with it. I kind of like admired it from afar almost just because it is what it is. And I don't know. But I certainly appreciated it. I might watch it again and might bump it up to a very good if we if we come back to it. I know I say sometimes I'll re-rate things, but I, I don't know what the mechanism for re-rating would actually be. But 
Good is where I landed. I imagine this is going to be a tough one for you to rate because of the nostalgia factor. Yes, exactly. Ironically, my appreciation for it is such that I would have to go eight, just full total tour de good. Uh, <laughs> that is a combination of factors. The nostalgia, obviously, but just appreciation that this exists, that people put their talents together and this was the result. I have not seen anything else quite like it when it comes to Christmas specials. If nothing else, it's memorable. I think you'll still be thinking about it years down the road. Would you say it's your favorite Christmas special? I would say it's one of my favorites. It's one I've got to watch every year. That said, it's certainly very out there. It's good to finally share it with someone else uh, outside the family bubble. And I think, realistically, i got to rein back my rating a little bit. I know Follow this your is heart, pretty man. out there. Follow your heart. No, I, I am going to put on my objective glasses. I'm going to say this is very good. It's got some things you won't find other places. I strongly recommend checking it out and making a judgment call for yourself because kind of like House... The surreal Japanese horror movie, where there's just a ton of off-the-wall crazy stuff happening all the time. It's a little difficult to make a judgment call. Agreed. So, I, I, I leave it in some sense in the eye of the beholder. Track this one down and, and see what you think. But I'm settling on 6 out of 8. Very good. Uh, I thought you were actually pulling the trigger on the 8 out of 8 there for a minute. Nope, nope. Got to reserve that a little okay. bit. I can't can't keep doing that on my own picks. <laughs> I was trying to make a, a rational decision here today, so well, I, I settle on very good six. I always encourage you to follow your heart, but six out of eight, that's, that, that sounds reasonable if you're trying to, to put on the objective lenses there, which is, it's good to do, you know, here as we evaluate, is it good? So, we've done it. We did it to it. That was the first of our Christmas episodes. I would say it's a good bet that there will be at least another. But before we depart entirely, do you have some parting thoughts, Dan? Uh, a couple. So one is that as of today, the recording, we have a real logo. So not something that I whipped together in Microsoft Paint in less than 10 minutes. And I'm really pleased with it. Harkens back to the origin of Brian's vision of the goods as like kind of a play on uh, give me the goods, show me the goods with like a smuggler. So uh, I'm, if you're listening to this, then you're probably seeing the logo or have seen it when you click to download it, but I'm proud of it. I think, I think it adds some flavor to our, our podcast. Yeah, it looks sharp. It's a good realization of my original vision. Uh, another thing is I follow up from last episode. So we talked about some kind of wonderful, the, the John Hughes written, Howard Deutsch directed romantic dramedy. I subsequently found an oral history of the recording of it. And I got to say, Brian, we basically nailed it. Everything that we said, this is kind of weird, or I wonder if they were thinking this, basically came up in there. So one is the casting. So apparently, uh, one thing that we talked about offline, it might have been in the recording, but I actually cut it from the recording, was speculating whether Molly Ringwald was considered for the Watts character. And apparently she actually was. So John Hughes had a version of the script that was more of a comedy and wanted to get... Uh, with Howard Deutsch, wanted to get Molly Ringwald to play the Watts character. And here's the other one that we brought up, Michael J. Fox to play the Keith character. 
So we had speculated would <laughs> with the the Eric Stoltz stand-in for uh, Michael J. Fox. It's kind of funny how that that almost happened again. Uh, I guess this is a reverse. Well, that just shows that we are very astute <laughs> and cultured film critics with our finger on the pulse of the media. Um, a couple other quick things from that, and I'll, I'll, I'll put the link there, but the cast also talked about how much they just did not understand the diamond earrings, spending all of his college money on it, how it's just like it was a completely insane move that didn't even really fit into the the story itself, and they didn't quite get it which I was glad that they had that reaction to. And uh, one more casting one. So Leah Thompson plays the Amanda character, so the character that he initially pines for. And <laughs> it turns out that there was some wrinkles in that casting too. So Howard Deutsch apparently tried multiple times to get her to play it. And at first she declined, and eventually it came back around and she decided to accept it. And she mentions in in the oral history that Howie, so I guess that's Howard Deutsch, Howie was harboring a big crush on me at this time. So it's kind of maybe that's why he offered her the part. He also they also said that like the painting of Amanda, who's Leah Thompson, Howard Deutsch like personally attended to and had multiple versions of it and was like making a big deal of out of revealing it to Leah Thompson and I think either she still has it or he still has it, but I thought, again, it was funny how, at least my opinion was, there was something odd in Leah Thompson and that casting choice, and apparently maybe the director's personal feelings were a part of that. So Yeah, so he was just really trying to <laughs> get something across there. And I I did start reading the, uh, the YA uh, novelization, and I got about halfway through it, and it gives you a lot more context for the characters and definitely frames the Amanda character differently, which... I was hoping it would, so enjoying it. Since you brought that book up on Buzzed On Movies, friend, some friends of the pod have a series. We've collaborated with them before, but they sometimes talk about Yaw. Teddy, one of the co-hosts, says his mom is or was a librarian and apparently an industry abbreviation for a young adult they don't, they don't say ya according to him they say ya but there has been argument on that podcast whether that's accurate i've never heard that before that's kind of funny i i knew as a, a fan of whatever you call that genre you might be interested in that i also wanted to point out that i looked into it and Wee's playhouse the christmas special is actually the first thing i ever wrote a blog post about on my Brian Terrell Movie Night film review page on Facebook back in uh, 2011. And actually, we're recording here on December 2nd. Uh, this post was written on December 1st, 2011, so it's almost nine years to the day that, that I have been film blogging. That's really cool. I'm, uh, you eventually posted some of those on our site, Earn This, which only slightly predates that. It was July 2009. So we will be hitting, man, I guess we passed 11 years this year. We didn't really celebrate the 10th anniversary last year. We should have. Anyways, yeah, that's cool. Now, would you care to give us a little taste of what's coming next? What's on the horizon? Sure. So I uh, I had a pick finalized. 
And then when Brian had already selected a Christmas one, I did some counting in my head, and I think I might only have this this one or maybe this one and next one to do Christmas. I thought about doing uh, It's a Wonderful Life because I've recently been into the crying happy tears types of movies, but I think uh, we can hold off on that one. You said you just watched it last year, as did I. I want, I want something a little fresh for both of us. I'm going to do a non-Christmas pick is what I'm saying. So a couple weeks ago, uh, one of my good friends gave me the movie recommendation to go watch the, the sci-fi classic 12 Monkeys, which I had never seen. And I went and watched it, and I knew that I had to talk about this movie with you for reasons that I'm not going to hint on right now. So I'm not going to give you anything more than that. Normally, I would give you a reason why I picked it. I just, I'm, all I'm going to say is I want to talk with you and see what your reaction is. So It has something to do with the time travel rules. I know that much. But I have not seen this film yet, so I'm interested to check it out. I know it pops up on a lot of highlight lists. So it's time. Cool. So we will talk about 12 Monkeys next week. Thank you for giving me my, uh, I would say, annual quota of insanity. Certainly weekly quota of insanity uh, with Pee Wee's Christmas special. Yeah, you got to kind of dilute it. It's like condensed juice. You don't drink it straight. (laughs) And thank you, listeners, for joining us. Hope you have a happy holiday season here at the start. And keep checking in with us as the weeks go by. Bye, everybody.